Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. The reason uh, we're working through this series, I think, um, is, and you've probably noticed this and mentioned this in the early service, but we think pretty highly of Jesus here. And the reason we do that, as Darren mentioned last week, and I want to reinforce this week, is that Jesus didn't just get dying right. In other words, uh, his work on the cross, his uh, uh, work of salvation by which we can, when we go to heaven, die, when we die, go uh, go to heaven, is not the point. Um, It's not, not the point. It's just that it's not the whole story of what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come so that we would have some place to hang out after we're dead. He came to teach us how to live our lives until that point of transition into the rest of our lives. Because there is life after life. And, and the patterns, the structures, the ways of soul forming that take place here are trajectories for the ways that we will live hereafter. So we want to learn from Jesus, not just how to die well, how to do the transition well. We want to learn from him how to live on the planet really well. The fact is, as we've been mentioning over and over again, most of the time we need to be aware that we're not going to heaven. The Bible makes it pretty clear that heaven is coming here. That, that this place in some form will persist and, and, and will be restored to its original purpose. So how do, how do I intend, how do you intend to become the kinds of persons whom God can trust, do you see, to do what he created us to do in the first place, Genesis chapter, chapter 1. And we're convinced that the primary way to do this is to follow Jesus very, very closely, not just as his admirers, but as his, his, his apprentices to learn our lives from him. So this is where we were last week. We, the, the question was, you know, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Well, then come to me and I'll give you rest. And the question then is, why should we trust Jesus with, when, with, with, to, to take his yoke, his teaching, his way of life on us uh, if he hasn't somehow himself gotten life right? So that's where we're, we're at. And we're going to go back to, because the question for me is, well, how did Jesus learn his life? And I know that's a strange way to put it. We, we have this sense that sometimes, at least perhaps you do, have this sense that Jesus just had it all together all the time. But that's not the biblical record. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus had to grow up. He developed. He grew in favor with God and man, and, and uh, he, he learned obedience, often through suffering, it says in Hebrews. So when we, when we think through that, it becomes clear that Jesus did not do what he did. He didn't live the way he did because he was God in human form. He lived as a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit in the same way that you and I are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he becomes, in fact, for us, an actual model of what a human being, a human life 
can actually look like. And so that's what we want to anchor. Where does, where does our sense of ourselves, where does our sense of self uh, come from? And so the answer to that, if we're going to learn from Jesus, uh, has to take us right back to the very beginning of his public uh, ministry, wanting to learn his, uh, our life from him, being his apprentices, we follow him, if you were, back to the beginning of his life where uh, he, he kind of comes on the scene uh, and, 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 and teaches us in this initial little story something that I think is of real value to us uh, as, a, as a way of going forward. So uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. Let's just uh, read that together. If you have Bibles, feel free to turn to them. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And we're going to go all the way through the first paragraphs of chapter 4. So Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. Go ahead. Thank you. As soon as Jesus was baptized then, he went up out of the water, and at that moment the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert, wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands they, so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So this uh, story, we'll start back at the first uh, slide and just walk through this. This is uh, what I think of, and Darren's not here so I can say this because he always teases me when I say this, but this is first button, first hole stuff. Does everybody know what I mean by that? Right. If you get if, if you first button, first hole, you'll be OK. Second button, first hole, not so much. <laughs> this is first button, first hole. In other words, if we get this right, if we anchor identity in the reality, this is what we're talking about, of the voice that we have heard from the heavens, then the rest of life flows out of that with meaning and significance. If we get that wrong, we will be searching all our lives for that kind of identity in all kinds of ways that end up becoming ultimately self-destructive. 
Okay? So we begin with verse 13. Jesus came from the Galilee. Remember, this is where he was born, far region. He's the Hicksville, uh, up in the middle of nowhere. He comes down south to the Jordan River where John, his cousin, is baptizing uh, and, and, and says to uh, him that he needed to be baptized. John pushes back. John recognizes who Jesus is recognizes him as a superior spiritual being, if you will, and uh, wants to resist Jesus's desire to be baptized. Remember, though, John, Jesus will later say, is the end of the Old Testament. He's the end of God's, he is the last, Jesus calls him the last of the prophets of the Old Covenant, right? The last and the greatest, actually, he'll say. So when Jesus comes to John, it is a mark of ending that old covenant, that old way of God's relating to humankind is over. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at what it says. Let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill, to complete, to bring to a conclusion this righteousness. So this is a transitional moment. The Gospels each use John the Baptist as a way to tell time, as a marker of time. So when his ministry ends, Jesus' begins, when John is put in prison, signifying the end of the Old Testament and executed, that's when Jesus begins his public ministry. So it's in that transitional time that we find ourselves right now. So Jesus is doing uh, what I call dirt work. That is, work in the, in the foundations of what will later become his public ministry. He's doing work in the foundational stuff. How many of you know enough about construction to know that if the foundation is solid, the building will probably be okay? That's what's going on here. We're working on a solid foundation. So, fulfilling righteousness. Now, notice what happens when he is baptized. He comes up out of the water, and at that moment, the heavens were opened, and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending on, like a dove and resting on him. Others of the Gospels will indicate that other people saw this and heard the voice that Jesus will later hear. But Matthew wants, in his way of telling this story, us to be clear, this is not about somebody else first. This is about Jesus first. This is not about somebody else hearing the voice of the Father for the Son. This is about Jesus hearing the voice of his Father for him. It is about him anchoring in who he is. Does that make sense? So he sees the Spirit of God descending in the Old Testament, the era that's just ending with this event. The Holy Spirit comes upon people for time and task. To do so, think of the Old Testament judges or the prophets. They come, the Holy Spirit empowers them for a specific season and uh, a specific task within that season. And when it's done, the Spirit leaves. But the Greek here behind this word indicates that the Holy Spirit comes and rests permanently now on Jesus. It's the first one of whom this is said. He comes and rests on him and begins to work through him in ways. Uh, that are parallel to the ways that he will work through us. So the spirit comes, rests permanently on Jesus. And then the voice uh, from the heavens says this, this is my son who I love with him. I am well pleased. I want you to notice that up until this moment, Jesus has done nothing. 
to merit this identity. Jesus lives out of his identity as the beloved son, not lives towards it. Does that make sense? Uh, We spend massive amounts of our time attempting to become someone. Jesus was someone and then was able to live out of that being. That's a critical difference for us and marks the primary difference between the way we tend to manage identity issues and the way Jesus did. So if we're going to learn from him, we need to learn from him first of all to tune our hearts, to tune our our ears, to tune our lives to the voice from the heavens, which when we hear it will give us capacity for the life that flows out of it. With me? That's going to become important given what happens next because you'll notice that uh, that, that language of belovedness, and please notice, the pleasure of the Father did not depend on what Jesus did. The love of the Father did not depend on Jesus' having done anything. This is so important because we live in a culture, a Christian culture, unfortunately, sometimes it suggests by implication, if not directly, that God loves you more if you're good. God loves you more if you minister in certain kinds of ways. God is more pleased with you if you X, Y, or Z. How many recognize that heresy? Because that's what it is. The fact is God is love. So his love for you doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And so it's an expression of his identity to love you really well His pleasure with you is in the fact of your being, not in anything that you do. As a result of that, you're free to move about the country. There's a freedom to play out of the identity that has been spoken into and over you by the spirit, by the voice from the heavens, right? And it's critical that we tune our ears to that voice because there are lots of other voices. Can I get a witness? They don't always say this about us. Okay, so that's the voice. Um, then Jesus is led and the, 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 the Greek in behind this uh, implies uh, a rather forceful leading. So Mark, for example, says driven. He is driven by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tested, into the wilderness to be tested. And this is, this is another important point that we need to be clear on. The Holy Spirit protects you from nothing. In fact, the Holy Spirit, when he comes and takes residence on you, will regularly put you in harm's way. How many have experienced that too? Right? Now, why does he do that? Because he doesn't like you? No, because he loves you and he wants you to be anchored in the love of the Father so it will regularly be tested. How strong is your grip on your identity? Can it withstand the pressures of whatever desert you're in? Because, friends, there's a desert coming with your name on it. Right? You will ex- if you're not in it now, you're either coming out of it or heading into it. The desert is the reality of our soul's life. And again, it's not simply, not simply so that we can hunker down and get through it. It's because the desert is a crucible 
that shapes and forms and transforms and purifies our sense of ourself as beloved of the Father. You will not know the love of the Father in the way that you do through pain, only through pleasure. It will be as he sits with you in your deepest and darkest hour and that you will come to terms with the fact that his love for you is unbelievable, so you better believe it. Do you see? But you need a desert for that. The beach won't do. You need a desert to test that. And of course, if you're, if you, if you're reading Matthew's gospel, you're probably a Jewish uh, believer or on the way to becoming a believer and trying to figure out the reality of Jesus. So you will have recognized with the language of desert, with the number of 40 days and 40 nights, that he's intending to allude back to Israel's own experience in the desert for 40 years in that desert, where their identity was tested as the Son of God and where they forgot who they were. With me? So there's this dual story going on here. Will you be like Israel and forget who you are in the desert? Or will you be like Jesus and become more solidified in the crucible of the desert when the heat is increased and the pressure is increased? And when that occurs, you are transformed more fully into the man, the woman that God has called and created and spoken and loved you into being. That's what the desert's about. That's why the Holy Spirit will regularly drive you out of town into the dark places and difficult places. So don't whine. Don't complain about it. Pack for the journey. Right? This is, this, by the way, I'm, seeing as how I'm ticking everybody else off now, might as well jump right in. <laughs> this is what makes the difference between immature adolescent Christians and mature adult Christians, disciples of Jesus. Because as adolescents, what do we do? We think it's about us. And when bad things happen, we think it's targeted at us. And we whine and complain. When you're an adult, you realize, oh, that's just life. Now, can we get on with something that matters? Right? So we, we, it's this, the desert is the means by which God intends us to grow up, right? So here we go. He's led by the desert, uh, spirit rather, uh, driven by the spirit into the desert to be tested by the devil. And all the devil is doing here, by the way, all the Satan is doing here is what he was created to do. All the Satan is doing here, all the devil is doing here is what he was created to do to do. The devil is God's primary means by which to test grip on identity. He did it in the garden, remember? He did it with Israel in the desert. He did it with Job, for example. And he'll do it with Jesus here. And he'll do it with you. Why? Because that's what he gets paid to do. That's that's what he's for. He doesn't tempt you for no purpose. His testing is about, are you hanging on to what's true? What happens when you get knocked sideways? Do you lose your grip? The only way to test that is to knock you sideways. Do you see? 
So that's what he does, and he's really good at it. Lots of practice. And so here's how it worked out for him this time. Uh, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, oh, while, while I'm on this, um, we, we have, uh, I think, mistakenly assumed that the devil is attacking Jesus at his weakest point. He's hungry. That is not true. Jesus, while not eating for 40 days and 40 nights in this supernatural fast, has been feasting on the word of God. He is at his strongest after this fast, not at his weakest. You'll notice how he responds to the enemy at each temptation. It is with that word that he has consumed. Are you starting to get what it might look like for you to be an apprentice of Jesus? If you don't learn the word the way Jesus learned the word, you won't have it available to you the way Jesus had it available to him. He did not have supernatural memory. He's a human being who had to memorize stuff. Guess what? You can do that too. It's really, really hard work. So don't wait until you're in your 30s to start memorizing stuff or 40s or 50s. If you have capacity at 20, jump in and start with the stuff in red. Okay, anyway, so, um, so Jesus, the tempter came to him, if you are the son of God, please notice what is being tested here. If you are the son of God, so you, you get the connection. He's heard the voice from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son, you are my son. In you I am well pleased, I love you. The temptation is, do you believe it? If you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Take advantage of your identity to prove your identity. You see what he's doing? You're hungry. Let's solve that physical problem by demonstrating your identity. You're the son of God. Of course you can turn stones into bread. By the way, could Jesus have turned stones into bread? Yes, Jesus is never tempted like you are never tempted with things that you can't do or that are not appealing to you. With me? So Jesus is tempted to do what he actually can do, but Jesus, you probably have learned, is really, really smart. He knows that if you have to prove your identity, you don't have a good grip on it. If you can be bullied into demonstrating who you are, you don't believe it yourself. So his response is almost laughing. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. What words? You're my beloved son. Those words. Who needs bread when you have the love of the Father? Now that sounds strange unless you've been really gripped by the love of the Father. Jesus believes that it is better to die of starvation loved by God than it is to satisfy hunger attempting to prove the love of God. This is hard for us. This is hard for us. But this is what Jesus is saying. Do, do, do you follow with me? So if you are the son of God, 
Prove it. Jesus' response, no, I've already heard the voice from the heavens. I, I don't need to eat. With me? So that's number one. Number two, the devil took him to the holy city to the highest point of the temple, which was the tallest building in the city. Throw yourself down. If you are the son of God, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Right? So throw yourself off and make God prove it. First temptation, if you are the son of God, you prove it. Second temptation, if you are the son of God, make God prove it. Make God jump through your hopes. Twist God's arm to demonstrate that you are his favorite after all. You see how it's going. And the, of course, Jesus' response is, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about his father. I'm not going to put God to the test. I know what's true. I don't need him to prove anything. Even if this were true, even if he would give his angels charge over him, even if he would be rescued supernaturally, miraculously from such a fall, if you have to prove it, you don't believe it. Some of you have experienced God's miraculous power in your life and still yet you do not have a grip on your identity in him. That's exactly the point. You will be more solid in your identity with an answer to prayer that is no than you will with an answer to prayer that is yes. It's hard for us because we think that a yes means we got it right. No, no. Sometimes a no is exactly the answer you need. Some of you are hearing that right now. Sorry, it's just true. You with me? Okay. So, if you're the son of God, prove it. If you're the son of God, make God prove it. The third one is the most diabolical of all. Look at what he says. Took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Did the devil have the right to make that contract? He did. He owns all of the kingdoms of the world. How did he get them? We gave them to him. Genesis chapter 1 makes it very clear. Who is the image of God who has charge over all the kingdoms of the world? Humanity is. We are. Genesis chapter 3, we traded our birthright, our identity as the image of God for an apple pie. At least that's what the story is that I've heard. I don't know about you. Right? So we gave him what he now claims to have and says that he will give to Jesus what Jesus has actually come for because he's aware that Jesus has come as the Son of God to reclaim, to stake God's flag in the ground again, to say finally in Long Beach as in the heavens again. Right? And so the enemy says to him, look, I know why you're here. Let's just cut to the chase. I have a deal for you. One time only. 
It'll be gone tomorrow. If you will bow down now and worship me, I will give you everything that you have come for and you can avoid that whole unpleasantness with the cross. You can avoid the pain of being who you are. You cannot pay the price of your identity. You see how this works? Because being who he is, beloved of the Father, is going to cost him something, namely his life. Guess what it's going to cost you? Exactly the same. And the temptation sometimes is overwhelming, isn't it? To avoid the pain of being who we are. Jesus' response is telling, away from me, Satan, adversary, opposition, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If I can get what I came for without the price that my father is asking me to pay, I don't have a grip on my identity and I've lost my relationship with the father. So Jesus is solid. And you'll notice that it is then that the angels come to minister to him. Isn't that annoying? It's like, guys, what, what were you doing? It's like on coffee break? Do your angels have coffee breaks? I think, I think they, they, they must, because they're, 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 they're standing around waiting to be sent in. This is a battle the angels cannot help you fight. It's you and the Spirit of God against the darkness, against the desert. So Jesus models for us as the first button, first hole, foundational reality of everything else that will come. Listen to the voice from the heavens. Be anchored in who you are. Live out of the center of the Father's love, the center of the Father's um, uh, pleasure, the center of your identity as his child, his precious, beloved, chosen child in whom he is well pleased. Right? Because the fact is, as we've mentioned before, life is going to happen. Stuff is going to happen. Stuff is going to blow through your life so fast it'll, it'll spin you crazy, won't it? And you're, you're going to get hit, hit by stuff that threatens to knock you sideways, right? And the older you get, the older you get, the more critical it is that you remember who you are. Because the older you get, the faster and harder the blows come. This is hard for us. Because I remember, I mean, somebody, somebody told me this once that, that um, uh, for kids between the ages of zero and 10, time moves at about half speed. And from 10 to 20, it moves at one to one speed, regular speed. But then for every decade thereafter, it doubles in its pace. Right? And I've, frankly, that's been my experience. Here I am at 60 and I'm looking back and saying, what happened to the 80s? I, they were fairly decent, except for the fashion. But other than that, it was <laughs> not, some good stuff was going. It's like, like yesterday, like late yesterday, right? It's like I was listening to the radio the other day and a song came on advertised as a golden oldie. And I remember that song. It's, it's like, what? How can that be old? Wait, 
Oh yeah, that was 45 years ago. <laughs> Gee, did they even have music back then? Anyway, but you, you, you know what I'm, you know, because, and, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because life feels like it's coming at you faster than it ever has before, right? And, 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 and the, the, especially as you get older, you spend less time looking forward and more time looking backwards because there's much more to see back there <laughs> than there is to see up there. So Jesus is aware of this. Hang on, guys. It's going to get rough. Hang on. Because what happens if we don't? If we aren't solid in our identity, you yourself will be tempted to prove it, to make God prove it, or to avoid the pain of it. Self-destruction is much easier if you don't know who you are. If you don't love the self that God loves, you will sooner or later find it much easier to just blow yourself up. In fact, the ancient classical writers on this, most specifically Gregory the Great, probably one of the greatest spiritual directors of all time, codified this into what we can now call the seven deadly sins. He says, ultimately, sin, self-destruction, roots in not being loved, not acknowledging your love, and not loving. Right? Jesus said it this way, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you love yourself, then you can love your neighbor without damage to your neighbor. So love is the through line. Do you see how this works? Love is the through line that connects the love of the Father to the love of others through the love of self. How do I come to the place where I can love myself with health, not proudfully, which is, a, by the way, a denial of being loved, but humbly as being beloved of the Father? Jesus is going to give us the strategy of it, but I will tell you that it involves a desert. It involves solitude and silence. It involves listening, having quieted the noise. Well, what happens if we don't do that? Well, the fact is, you will find identity in something else. You will be perennially, constantly on the search for something else, someone else, into which to anchor your identity. How many know what I'm talking about with a parasitic friendship? I am because I'm your friend. That's parasitic, right? Or, or uh, probably the most egregious one to, 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 to me today is the, is the social media, right? I am because I Instagram. Why do we do that? Why, do, why is it important that America know what you had for dinner last night? In, yeah, why, is, why, is that, why is that important? Second only to crazy cat videos. Why is it important that I post what I had for dinner last night? And, and the answer really, you don't have to think too deeply on this. The answer is, if, I, if I'm noticed, then I must exist. If I post, I am. Does that work? Do you, do, you see, do you see what I'm after here? And so we end up posting our, Instagramming our perfect life because we don't really actually post what's actually going on. 
We clean it up. We have filters. We edit what people see of us. And then we just wait around and count the likes so that we know we exist. We're noticed. We have being because I have 1,500 Facebook friends or whatever. <laughs> right? And the fact is, um, if you have to ask somebody to notice you, you don't know who you are. Hard news, huh? Or we have people who identify, listen to the language, identify with a celebrity or with a sports team or with some other, ba with a band. This attraction to an identification with these public figures. And we do this in Christianity too, by the way. And it's just as damaging. Because when we identify with, inevitably we take our identity from. We're known as a fan of. And sooner or later, that fan culture will, as we have seen it happen over and over and over again, disappoint and lead you into the ditch somewhere of your own life. You're not intended to find identity in sports figures or entertainment figures, no matter how wonderful they might be. It's terribly, terribly damaging when somebody in, in the entertainment industry claims to be Christian that we all of a sudden just rocket them to the top of whatever pedestal we have and tell their story. Leave them alone. Let them spend a few years in the desert. Let them get tested at identity because the pressure of social identification will crush the soul that hasn't been already crushed by the desert. And this is critical for us in terms of allegiances, whether sports or bands or whatever it is, or preferences. I've, I, I'm, I'm aware because I'm spending way too much time watching food TV, right? Food Network, right? That there are people, there are people who identify with certain kinds of foods. This is the root of gluttony in our culture. And I say that with all kindness because I happen to be one of them if I'm not careful, right? I mean, anybody who roasts their own coffee, which I do, <laughs> is on the way to gluttony. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? And, 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 and there's a little bit of pride. I think I've touched a nerve here. I don't know, we're having... But, do, but do, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like my son Peter was introducing me to my friends and my, his friend had the, had the cold brew out there the, from, from oh, yeah, it's too much of this and that. So I started talking about this. And then Peter looks at him and says, yeah, my dad roasts his own coffee and I could feel myself. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. But do you see how subtle this is? You see how subtle this is in terms of our identity anchored in things that cannot carry the weight of our identity. I'll be somebody when I'm married. No, you won't. I'll be somebody when I have kids. No, you won't. 
No, you won't. You won't. If you're not somebody before you have kids, if you're not somebody before you get married, if you're not somebody before you graduate from college, you won't be somebody afterwards. That's why Jesus says, let's get this right first. Then you can have kids without damaging the kids because you're expecting them to provide your identity. Then you can get married without damaging your husband or wife expecting them to provide your identity. Then you can get a job because then you can live and work out of your identity rather than counting on your job to provide you an identity. This is so critical. We have boatloads of people who upon retirement die within two years because they've lost their identity. I don't have any place to go. I have nothing to do. I'm not good for anything. I might as well just die. That's counting on your job to provide you something that you are supposed to provide it. I'm not getting any fulfillment out of my job. Well, so? You're supposed to bring fulfillment to it, not it to you. Do, do you see how this works? So Jesus says, you're not what you do. What you do reflects who you are. Bring your life to that space, to that season. Education, knowledge, relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Spiritualities in the Christian environment, especially in Pentecostal charismatic kinds of environments, like we, we believe in prayer and so on. It's so easy to anchor your identity in spiritualities. And Jesus said, no, desert time. Desert time. We got we to gotta, we gotta tighten your grip on the voice from the heavens. And in order to do that, we got to loosen your grip on anything else. Because if we don't do this right, we will always be coming from a place of insecurity and fear, a sense of not being enough. It will impact everything. All of our relationships, it will manifest most in anxiety and pride. Right? Or one of the, if you want a quick and dirty test on this. How much of your happiness depends on your being able to manage other people? The more of your happiness that depends on other people getting their act together, the more you have lost a grip on your identity. Do you see what I'm after here? So we get invited instead, we get invited instead into the voice from the heavens where God who spoke the universe into being speaks truth into the center of your soul. You are my beloved child. If that is not true, then nothing else will ever reinforce identity in that way. So Jesus' strategy that we can follow him in is time alone in the desert. Tamping down the noises and the other voices. How many of you recognize other voices that are yelling things about identity at you? Yeah? Jesus said, let's, let's turn the volume down a little bit. Let's get away from defining relationships. That's what the desert's for. 
so that we can be attentive to God. Let's clear the decks. Go CrossFit training with fasting so that when the temptations come, when the tests come, we have capacity to endure and to teach the devil a thing or two. It's important because pain will be our primary teacher or it will be our main enemy. Discomfort will be a primary formative teacher. And this is not easy, is it? I mean, this, this week I'm asking my students in spiritual disciplines at Vanguard to spend 24 hours in silence. Don't talk. And I'm already getting emails. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life. You'd think I'd ask them to jump off the bridge. This is horrible. You'll, you'll be fine. It's okay for you to not talk. This is news to some of my 22-year-olds, as it is to almost all of the rest of us. Well, if I don't talk, will anybody notice me? Yeah. Your Heavenly Father will notice you. Is that good enough for you? Because if it isn't, other people noticing won't be. That's what he invites us into, those disciplines of solitude and silence. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.